Well, we're going to be back in Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning. Grab your Bibles. Open up to Ezekiel 37. Well, you're doing that. Think about this. Here's reality. All of us, every last one of us, face difficult times, dark seasons, experiences that that are so distressing that sleep begins to evade us, that anxiety begins to grip us, or maybe that anger begins to twist us. And the worst of it, the worst of it is when we can't see a way out. We don't see an end to what's going on. We don't, we don't see any, any hope on the horizon. In times like that, there, there's nothing like the Word of God to calm us, to settle our hearts. In those times, I, I often find myself rehearsing, rereading Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or, or maybe Psalm 80. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine so that we might be saved. Or Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Later the psalmist says, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Or how about Psalm 46? God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. There are times when it is only God's word that could calm our hearts. But if we're honest, if we're going to be real, then we have to admit that there are times that, that, quite honestly, we just don't believe God's promises to us. And as a result, we end up lacking the peace and the comfort that we could have in the midst of those times of trouble. I think that's where God's people were at when God gave them Ezekiel chapter 37. When God spoke to them the things that he said in the chapter that we're going to consider this morning. Now, if you remember, if you remember in Ezekiel chapter 36, God made some wonderfully amazing promises to his people. But I think they lacked the hope, really the faith, to believe that the things that God promised them there could actually happen for them in their day. After the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem, and think about this, think about all that that meant 
to the Jews of that day. That was not only the loss of their hope and their pride in their home, but in many ways for them, it felt like the loss of their God. After that, what was left of God's people, they seemed to sink into a deep and dark despair, a true depression. The unrelenting losses defeat after defeat, and worst of all, their own unending failures. That's the worst part, isn't it? I mean, life can be brutal, but isn't the worst part the messes that we make for ourselves? All of this dulled their faith. It blunted their hope to the point that they seemed unable to even grasp onto the promises that God was making to them in the midst of their circumstances. They put it this way in in chapter 37, there in verse 11. They say to the Lord, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. God, it's nice that you've said these things that you've said. It's nice that you've made these promises. I'm glad that you've spoken these words of hope, but I'm sorry I don't buy it. I can't believe it. I can't put my hope in that at this point. That's what God's people are saying to them. They're saying our bones are dried up, and so God gives them a vision about bones. Ezekiel 37, let's begin, verse 1. Ezekiel writes, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. What an awful picture Well, what a terrible vision, a nightmare, I'm sure, for Ezekiel as the Lord takes him and places him in in the midst of this setting where he is surrounded by nothing but dry, bleached bones. Now think about this for a minute. The Lord's trying to encourage Ezekiel. (laughs) And so in order to encourage him, the Lord... It drops him in the middle of an enormous pile of bones. Dry, sun-bleached bones. And he tells Ezekiel, yeah, this is you. This is your people. Your people are so dead that they're nothing more than bones. Now that is not encouraging. Not even in the least, just the opposite. It, it, It sucks the hope right out of this situation. But it was true. It was absolutely true. Like those bones, the Israelites had not only been defeated, but they felt that they had been abandoned in their destruction. Forsaken by God. That's not really encouraging. But understand this. We will never be encouraged at least not for long, by our circumstances. Do you get that? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Every advancement in this life is temporary. Every victory in this life is fleeting. They don't last, at least not for long. In the end, the things of this life will be nothing more than ashes that sift through our fingers. What is encouraging, even in the midst of that, is what God does in the midst of our circumstances. If you are looking at your circumstances and you are not encouraged, don't be surprised. Don't don't be shocked by this. Understand that you will not find encouragement, at least not reliably, in the situations of life. Where we find encouragement is when we begin to consider what it is that the Lord will do in the midst of our mess. Look at verse three. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Now the obvious answer is no, they're a pile of bones. But Ezekiel, Ezekiel wonderfully, he answers, oh Lord God, you know. <laughs> now he evades it completely. I mean, he, he turns it back around. He gives it back to the Lord. He basically is saying, Lord, you can do anything. I have no idea what's going to happen at this point, but you can do anything. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, let's just be honest. Let's just look at, step back and look at this. Speaking God's message to a pile of old bones is not only strange, Any reasonable person or logical person would say that it is useless and it is foolish. Dry bones can't respond to the word of God. By the way, just since we're talking about this, we should probably remember that the world around us says the same thing about the gospel, that it's foolishness. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18? There he reminds us that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, in other words, this world, it thinks that Christ's death in our place upon the cross It thinks that God's provision for our forgiveness is nothing more than foolishness. And yet, this is how God has chosen to save us. So, understand this. Don't be shocked by the response of this world to the message of the gospel. Their default setting is to see it as foolishness. And so to turn away from God's forgiveness. That's why in order for someone to get saved, there's something else that needs to happen. There's something else that needs to take place. 
besides them just hearing the message of the gospel. We'll get there. Now, Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a 20-year ministry amongst the captives there in Babylon. He was very used to preaching to people who were about as responsive as a pile of dead bones. Therefore, it was no problem for him then to speak to a pile of literal dead bones. And so, verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Again, I think it might have been a bit of a terrifying picture for, for uh, old Ezekiel. I think that, that might have been quite a stunning situation to find himself in. I think, though, that as it, it happened, once the amazement of seeing it begin to happen wore off, Ezekiel would have realized that though what he was seeing was unbelievable, it was not yet what was needed. Notice that though these old bones now looked somewhat better, they were no longer just dry, bleached bones, but now they had flesh and muscle and skin. Yet without the breath, the Spirit of God, those two words, breath and spirit, they're the, they're the same word in the Hebrew language. They're, they, they're both expressed by the singular Hebrew word without the spirit of God without the breath of God there was no life without the spirit of God that pile of old bones had become nothing better than a pile of dead bodies you see people can't get saved or, or people can't grow in their walk with Christ without hearing the truth, but also not just with hearing the truth, that it can't happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. It won't, it won't accomplish anything for someone to hear the truth without God's Holy Spirit working upon them. Understand this, we are saved by the grace of God. Not by our works, not by our comprehension, not by our apprehension. It is the Holy Spirit that awakens our hearts and our minds to God's truth. It is the Holy Spirit that is God promised us. Remember last week in, in chapter 36 there in verses 25 and 26, it, God promised us that it would be his spirit that would cleanse us, that would give us a new heart would put a new spirit within us that would remove our hardened hearts and that would make us receptive to him. That's what we need, isn't it? That's what we need. We need to hear the truth, but we need then that truth to be taken up by the Holy Spirit who has prepared our hearts and to have him apply it to our hearts. We need, we need to hear the truth of God's word, but we also need the work of the Holy Spirit to take place in our hearts and our minds.
That is exactly what we need every week, every day, again and again. Dear friends, I, I challenge you. I beg you. Daily, as, as you get into God's word, ask him to work it into you. Ask him to, to pour out his Holy Spirit so that that time of reading God's word can begin to impact your hearts and your minds and your lives. As we come together week by week, pray and ask God to pour out his Holy Spirit and to use this time, to use the truth of his word to speak to you, to transform you, to accomplish his work in you. You know, that's how God works in the lives of those in the world around us as well. And so when we share with someone, either sharing them the, with them the gospel, if they don't yet know the Lord, or maybe sharing with another believer some truth from Scripture, we would do very well to remember to pray prayed to ask the Holy Spirit to work, to soften hearts, to open minds, to draw others to himself. This is why before sending them out with his message, Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. What were they waiting for? For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But what were they waiting for? To be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that will take the truth of God's word. and Make it productive, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Nothing eternal. Nothing eternal is ever accomplished without the work of the Holy Spirit. F.B. Meyer put it this way. He said this, We may preach so as to effect an outward revolution. In other words, we may preach and, and the result that we might see might be radical. But he said, but there can be no life until the divine breath passes over them. I would, I would add it, to it this, we may be preached at so as to affect an outward change. But there will be no life until the divine breath passes over us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to take us and to work his truth into us, to make this time that we have together something that matters for eternity. That we might be transformed. Well, without the Spirit of God, there's no life. And so we read in verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds. O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. 
So God promises and he delivers the impossible. Out of death comes life. He takes a pile of old bleached bones and when the Spirit of God has done his work, they come alive. God is is saying to Ezekiel and to all of his fellow captives, I can do what I have promised to do. You see, it doesn't matter how far gone Israel is. God can bring them back to life. Oh, their capital's been destroyed. The temple is demolished. They have been taken as captives. They are living in a foreign land. But God is able. God is able to reform them, to bring life back into them. Notice this as well. Because there's a parallel here for us. Notice too that God says that he is going to raise up Israel. That he's going to remake them into a nation. But not so that they could be a nation of spectators. Not so that they could become a social club. God was raising them up to be what? To be an army. To be an army, to do his work, to be his people. And so to us. Do you ever wonder why when you don't get saved, there isn't just a a little flash of light and a pile of clothes and you're gone? You know, not that I want to arrive at heaven naked. I don't know where that image came from. You know, that that we'd leave all our clothes behind. Personally, I'd like to be wearing something when I arrive. But why, why does he leave us here? Do you ever wonder when, when you get saved, why not just short? I mean, because you've probably messed things up since you got saved. I know I certainly have. I've made a mess since I've gotten saved. Wouldn't it just be cleaner every time someone accepts a Savior? Poof. Oh, I guess he got saved because he's not here anymore. You ever wonder why instead the Lord chooses to leave us here? It's so that we might walk with him here, that we might serve him here, that we might be his ambassadors to this world. You know, the Lord does not save us simply to improve the journey here on this planet, here in this life. But he saves us so that we might be made right with our God, and that we might be enabled and empowered to serve him while we yet live. Which, by the way, in the end, is a far better way of living than any other way. We have a purpose, friends. He was reforming Israel to be his people, to be his army, to do his work. And so, too, he has saved us for the same purpose. Verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We indeed are cut off. This was was their response to God's promises that he'd given them back in chapter 36. They said, God, it's nice for you to say all that, but let's let's just be realistic here. It's not going to happen. And so the Lord says, therefore prophesy. 
and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The captives had given up. They had, they, they had quit. All was lost from their perspective. They were slaves. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple was gone. They were as good as dead and buried. Their situation was simply beyond all hope. Her nation was defeated. Its people had been exiled. Israel was done. It was over. Except, except, God said that it wasn't over. And, and what God says he will do, he always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. Even though the nation was as good as dead, God said that he would raise them. And he did. He did. And this was at least partially fulfilled uh, 70 years later when the Persian king Cyrus came to power, took over Babylon, and when he did that, chose to send some of the Jews back to Israel in 539 B.C. It's, it's all there in history. It was fulfilled in even a greater way in our day. 1948, after 1,800 years, Israel once again became a sovereign nation. And yet there is much here that we still wait and watch for. Uh, we wait for that day, uh, likely I think at the end of all things, when the Lord will put his spirit within them. and They will know the Lord. That day, as we mentioned last week, will come. Scripture says it will. And Paul talks about it in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. He talks about that day when, when all Israel will be saved. I think that's going to be during Christ's millennial reign, after Jesus is re, re, has returned to earth to rule and to reign, and when those who gather under Christ, they will be saved by grace, by the work of God's Holy Spirit. You know, friends, it is a good thing for us to remember that God will be faithful to his promises to Israel because that means he will be faithful to his promises to us. And it is a good thing for us to remember that no matter, no matter how dark it looks, no matter how bad it gets for Israel, that God will do what he has said he's going to do for them because he is able. That's a good thing to remember because that'll help us to remember the fact that no matter how dark things get for us, no matter how difficult things become, that we have a God who is all-powerful. How often do you feel like your circumstances are a graveyard? They're just a graveyard. How often do you feel like your circumstances are just, well, let's just be realistic, they're beyond help. 
You might feel like you're too messed up, that you are too damaged, too broken, too stupid, whatever. Maybe, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's your friend or your spouse or your kid. You look at them and you think it's just a lost cause. Let me remind you, they're not. They're not. No one is beyond God's reach. No one. Anyone on this side of the final judgment is within God's reach. It can be changed. It can be transformed, redeemed, sanctified. Because we have a God who is unstoppable. We have a God whose love is unquenchable. And he's proved that to us, hasn't he? He's proved that to us. Remember what Paul says about God as he prays in Ephesians 3.20? He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. What Paul is saying there is that our God is able to do more than we could ever ask. We can't even get creative enough to ask for something that God cannot give us. Now, that doesn't mean that God will always do whatever it is that we want him to do in every situation. But it does mean that he is able. It does mean that he is able. And we can know that he loves us and that he will do what is best for us. He's proven his love for us, hasn't he? Romans 8, 32 there we're reminded that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can trust God. He, he has proven his love for us. He put on human flesh. He lived amongst us and he bore our sin. How can we then think that he will withhold anything from us? Here's my point in this. God has proven his love for us. And so we can and we should trust him. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. That's the hard part, isn't it? When you understand what God is doing, when when God is following your instructions, it's really easy to trust him. But you know what? God doesn't follow my instructions much because they're usually really bad. Instead of doing what I tell him, he does what is right. He does not what I want, but what is good. And he's proven through the death of Christ upon the cross on my behalf, that I can trust him even when I don't understand. Well, the Lord expresses one more detail to Ezekiel here about how it's going to be when he brings Israel back into the land. To sum it up, he says that he's going to do it right. Uh, pick up in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick 
and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, talking about the southern kingdom, and then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel with him, speaking of the northern kingdom, and join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. So, a little quick review of history. Um, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, two often warring kingdoms. Ever since the death of King Solomon, David's son, um, when, when Solomon's foolish son Rehoboam caused an issue that led the northern tribes to say, yeah, we don't really want you to be our king. So they rejected him and they chose instead to break away from the southern tribes and to take a man named Jeroboam as their king instead. And so since that time, Israel had existed as a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so here Ezekiel refers to Judah, to the, to the tribe of King David and of Rehoboam as the southern kingdom of Israel. And to Joseph, the father of Ephraim, the, the main leader of the northern tribes as the northern kingdom. And the Lord tells Ezekiel to write these names on two sticks, I think symbolic of two royal scepters representing the two divided kingdoms. And then they were to be bound together, joined back into one. Verse 18, and when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather, gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And so the Lord says, I'm going to bring Israel back together, but I'm going to do it as one nation. No more divided kingdom. Though they had divided themselves, though they had been scattered for generations, yet the Lord says he is going to bring them back together and they will be one nation. And he did. The Lord has already done this. History bears it out. Uh, they have often been defeated since that time, but they have never again been divided. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, they returned to the land as one nation. And then under the Maccabees, they were one nation. And in our day, since its rebirth in 1948, Israel has been one nation. But God is going to do more than just bring them together to unite this divided people. Look at verse 23. And they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. 
So the Lord says that he's going to change them. He's going to change the people. He's going to purify them. He's going to free them from their sin. One day he says, I think at the end of all things, when Christ has returned, when Christ is ruling, God's Holy Spirit will move on the people of Israel in a powerful way. And like they are today, they will be one nation but very different from how they are today. They will be holy. They will live in unbroken relationship with their God, so much so that the Lord says here, they will be his people and he will be their God. Think about that. That has been the point of all of history. That has been the reason for everything that has happened. All through history, this has been the goal. This is what God created us for. This is what he has redeemed us for. This is the goal of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit for us. It's for you and for me, for all of God's people to live in unbroken fellowship with our God. For us to be holy so that we can live in relationship with the God who created us. Friends, this is what we were made for. This is where we find our purpose. This is where we find fulfillment. It's where we fit. It's where we belong. But we can only get there by the grace of God, purchased for us upon the cross. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, breathing his life into us. And that is a process that will be ongoing until that day, until that day when we see him face to face. First John chapter 3 reminds us of this. It says, we know that when he appears, that's when Christ returns, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You know, far better than Israel coming back into their land, and far better than Israel once again being undivided, even far better than Israel being transformed, being made holy, is that Israel and all who come to Christ will be back where we belong, imperfect, untainted, unending, grace-bought and grace-sustained fellowship with the God who created us. Won't it be good to be with our God without the barrier of sin, without the weakness of our flesh? That is what he's drawing us to. That is what he is orchestrating. That is why he is purifying and sanctifying us. That is what this, this journey is all about. Well, as we talked about last time, again, the Lord is once again going to make David king over Israel. Listen to what he says, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, and they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And now many, many think that when God says, my servant David, that what he really meant was my servant, the son of David, or my servant, the Messiah. But I think God pretty much says what he means to say. And even though I look at it and think, well, this is kind of weird, yet what the Lord has said clearly over and over again, not just here in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah and in Isaiah as well, and in some of the other prophets, is that he is going to take King David. And when Christ returns to rule and reign over the earth, that David will be his king in Jerusalem and that he will shepherd his people. He will care for them and lead them and point them to his son. He will point them to the Messiah, to Jesus. Partway through verse 26. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And so God's sanctuary, his, his dwelling place, will be in their midst. But this time it will be there with no curtain of separation, with no barrier of sin keeping them from God's presence. They will know true worship. True worship, unhindered, unlimited, unrestrained. Worship that is the result of the work of God's Spirit. Think of what Jesus said to the to the Samaritan woman there in John chapter 4. He said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. For those of us who are in Christ, that door is open today. By the grace of God, by the work of the spirit, we can experience an unhindered and unlimited and unrestrained worship of the Lord because of his grace. But we have to trust him to do what he said he's going to do. Do we? Do we trust that God can do what he said he will do? Or do we look at our situations and think, you know, it's just too late. It's just too late. Sometimes we look at our circumstances and we see nothing but a pile of bleached bones. And we look at that and we think, you know what? There's just nothing left for God to work with. It's done. It's over. You know what we like to do? We like to take our circumstances. We like to take our situations and we like to hold a little funeral. And we get them cremated and we put them in a box and we tell God to stay away from it. But we have a God who specializes in resurrection. We have a God who likes to intervene in our lives. We, like, uh, we have a God who likes to take those things that we have given up on, that we have just found to be too tiresome, too, too, too wearisome, too hopeless for us to continue to hope. 
and he puts flesh on them and he breathes life into them and he does what he says that he will do. I don't know your circumstance. I don't know what funerals you've had for situations in your life. I don't know what God will do, but I know this. We worship a God who specializes in resurrection. How about if we let him do what he wants to do? We trust him for it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning that those of us who have given up, who have quit hoping, whatever the situation may be, that you would put our eyes on you instead of the pile of bones. God, that we would trust you. That we would even invite you to do whatever work you desire to do in the middle of our mess. God, we need you to breathe life into us, into those around us, into our situation. We ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our minds, to transform our living, to free us from those things that captivate us, to breathe your life into us. We invite you to work in us, Lord. We are helpless. We need you to work we ask you to do it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.